Welcome to 2050 Investors, the podcast that deciphers economic and market megatrends to meet tomorrow's challenges. I'm Koko Abubla. I head up economics, cross-asset, and quant research at Société Générale. In each episode of 2050 Investors, I'll investigate a key megatrend that relates to the economy, the planet, markets, and you. Everybody, look at the camera and say cheese. One, two, three, and cheese. Hmm, let's take another one. Two people forgot to smile. Cheese. The number of pictures and videos of fun and happy moments like these saved on my smartphone and the cloud has gone through the roof. I think I'm not far from one terabyte of media files accumulated over the past decade. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. You must be very, very happy then. Well, it's not just about quantity, but quality. The quantity of quality moments. Let's take a quick tour down memory lane. There are pictures of my wife and me 15 years ago, our trips around the world, our wedding, honeymoon, happy moments spent with the family, brothers, sisters, cousins, in-laws, and parties with friends. In fact, the sheer number of pictures capturing these happy memories exploded when we had children. Pictures of them as toddlers, videos of them when they first said daddy or mommy, the first time they walked or rode a bicycle by themselves, countless birthday parties, cakes and candles. Moments spent with the ever-growing family at Easter, Christmas and New Year's Eve. Then summer and winter holidays with the kids and of course our karate gradings. Yes, my wife and our three daughters, we all take karate lessons every Saturday morning. These are exhausting, sweaty moments, but happy and proud ones too. The few occasions where I got punched in the face during a lesson do not count, obviously. Zankutudachi maegedanbarai. He's out. Oops, the lesson has started. I need to get going, otherwise I'll have to do 20 push-ups on my knuckles. I'm also attempting my black belt grading this year. Wish me luck. Us. I'm joining Cobra Kai. Sensei. From group photos to selfies splattered across social media, Instagram, Facebook, we all want to remember, save, and share these memories frozen in time. That's probably the reason why we have such a hard time deleting them. We know these moments will gradually fade away over time, but the memory of how we felt will remain ingrained in our hearts. But what do all these pictures have in common? Fake smiles? Ha! Huh. Not always, Siri, but yes, smiles are visual expressions of happiness. When we feel good and want to sing like James Brown's infectious song, I feel good. Wow, I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't now. So good, so good, I got you. Wow. Okay, okay, I think I got the message. You can stop now. Sorry, I got carried away there. The point is that you rarely see pictures of moments where we are sad, angry, depressed, or stressed. They usually end up in a junk folder. The universal symbol of happiness is indeed the smile. As a society, we crave more of it, and at every corner of our lives, there is some individual, group, or entity promising us more. Maybe smiling should be one of the sustainable development goals. <laughs> Maybe you are raising an interesting point about the future of happiness. In this episode, we will explore the economics of happiness 
and raise some important questions about the drivers and measures of true happiness in our society. Can we decarbonize our pursuit of happiness? And should we follow in the footsteps of Bhutan, a country in Southeast Asia, by focusing on growing the gross national happiness instead of GDP and consumption? Later on, Claudia Senek, a well-known French expert on happiness, will help us understand if we are selfishly putting the happiness of our generation ahead of that of future generations. Let's start our investigation. The first question we have when it comes to true happiness is, what is happiness? It is clearly a subjective concept and varies from one culture to the next, an idea that has evolved over centuries. So, is it possible to define and measure it individually or collectively? One could measure it by the number of Facebook friends, the number of happy pictures during non-carbon neutral vacations, or the number of likes on your latest posts. Ha, you know me too well, Siri. Maybe happiness should be measured by the amount of time we spend together on this podcast. Stop. You are going to make me smile. Well, in an article written for Very Well Mind, a publication on mental health, author Kendra Cherry defines happiness in psychology as a state of emotional well-being that a person experiences either in a narrow sense, when good things happen, in a specific moment, or more broadly, as a positive evaluation of one's life and accomplishments overall that is, subjective well-being. Happiness can be distinguished both from negative emotions, such as sadness, fear, and anger, and from other positive emotions, such as affection, excitement, and interest. This emotion often co-occurs with a specific facial expression, the smile. There is indeed an entire field of research dedicated to understanding subjective well-being. Happy people tend to experience frequent positive emotions, and infrequent negative emotions. Happy people report being satisfied with their lives. However, pleasure does not necessarily mean happiness. The article goes further. It is possible that someone could experience plenty of negative emotions, yet still acknowledge that the conditions of his or her life are good. For example, someone who volunteers for charity may experience negative emotions but may also feel satisfied with life because the work is worthwhile. Similarly, people who spend lots of time partying may experience frequent momentary positive emotions, but they may also feel that life is empty and meaningless. Isn't happiness just a chemical reaction in the human brain? The release of happiness hormones, serotonin, dopamine, endorphins. This is true, but they might also be a happiness gene. An article on psychologytoday.com, entitled How Genes Influence Happiness, says that genes in subjective well-being account for around 40 to 50% of positive emotional states, and between 30 and 40% can be explained by the negative emotional states of depression and anxiety. According to this theory, positive emotion lead people to think creatively and try new things. As a result, happy people can develop new ways to approach the world, new interests, new social relationships, and even new physical skills. All these effects lead to positive outcomes in people's life. This reminds me of the quote by Winston Churchill, the pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity. The optimist sees an opportunity in every difficulty. The concept of happiness has evolved over time. 
Let's get some insight from some of the greatest minds throughout history. Social media influencers? No, philosophers. And to do so, let's step away from the digital world and visit a proper library with real books as we used to in the good old days. I know a good one down the street. It's only a five-minute walk. And you know what? There is nothing better than a bit of fresh air and some sunshine to start the day in a good mood. We've arrived at the famous British Library with over 150 million items in its collection. Let's start with ancient Greece, around 4th century BCE. First up, Plato. In his view, to achieve happiness, one should become immune to changes in the material world. Plato sees societal happiness stemming from citizens treating each other justly and leading virtuous lives. So buying more stuff won't make you happy in the long run. Now, Antisthenes, the founder of cynicism, promoted an ascetic life, lived in accordance with virtue, which meant severe self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgence. To lead virtuous and thus happy lives, one should reject any notion of happiness involving money, power and fame. This sounds like Buddhism where you detach yourself from all the passions, needs and wants of life. Indeed, but I'm not sure people will be willing to give up carbon and calories-intensive lifestyles today. Epicurus, the founder of Epicureanism, also taught that the aim of life was to attain a state of tranquility, ataraxia, and freedom from fear, as well as absence of bodily pain. Stoics took this idea one step further and believed in the words of Epictetus that a sage, a virtuous man or a woman could be sick and yet happy, in peril and yet happy, dying and yet happy, in exile and happy, in disgrace and happy. Easier said than done. I agree. Now, in the 12th century, Al-Ghazali, a Muslim theologian and philosopher, wrote The Alchemy of Happiness. He emphasized the importance of observing the ritual requirements of Islam, the actions that would lead to salvation and the avoidance of sin. Similarly, Saint Thomas Aquinas, a 13th century philosopher and theologian who became a doctor of the church, thought that perfect happiness could not be found in any physical pleasure, worldly power, fame or honor. Only the union with God was the most perfect human happiness and the goal of human life. Religious belief can be a powerful driver of happiness for many humans. Absolutely. Now let's end this review with these two last philosophers who took a radical view. Arthur Schopenhauer, a 19th century German philosopher, explained happiness in terms of a wish that is satisfied, which in turn gives rise to a new wish, and the absence of satisfaction is suffering, which results in an empty longing. And finally, Friedrich Nietzsche, another 19th century German philosopher, thought that making happiness one's goal and the aim of one's existence, in his word, makes one contemptible, that is, deplorable. He instead yearned for a culture that would set higher, more difficult goals than mere happiness. Nietzsche wanted people, instead, to consider the value of what is difficult, what can only be earned through struggle, difficulty and pain. 
In a nutshell, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yes, no pain, no gain, no happiness. Were these philosophers happy themselves? That's a good question. A state of permanent happiness is not realistic either. Unless you're continuously being fed morphine or are in heaven, which, by the way, is the origin of the phrase happily ever after, at the end of fairy tales and children's stories. Another conclusion from these insights of the past 3,000 years of wisdom is that money cannot buy happiness. But is this still the case today? According to Britannica.com, psychologists have arrived at several surprising conclusions in their search for predictors of happiness. Many of the factors that may first come to mind do not seem to play a major role in happiness. For example, although people strive to acquire high-paying jobs and dream about winning the lottery, income is not strongly correlated with happiness. This is what Dan Hebron, philosophy professor at the St. Louis University, confirmed in an article for the Standard Encyclopedia of Philosophy, noting that although wealthy people are happier than poorer people, the difference is not very large. So much for the get rich or die trying, 50 cent. Really? All this hard work to be part of the 2050 investors' top team was for nothing? Of course not, Siri. Money does have an impact. But the relationship is strongest among the poorest groups and emerging countries. Income, however, leads to smaller and smaller gains in happiness as income levels rise. That's the law of diminishing return as discussed in the Known Unknowns of Inflation episode. Yes, some money can indeed help protect against poverty-induced unhappiness. Similarly, health also plays a role in subjective well-being. But the associations are, again, surprisingly small. Older people with major health problems, such as paralyzing spinal cord injuries, are a bit less happy than uninjured people. The difference is not as large as some might expect. Even people with serious illnesses tend to report happiness scores that are above neutral. Humans are fascinating. Then what is the real driver of true happiness today? Well, Dan notes in the same article that the factor most closely linked to high levels of happiness is social relationships. Like our friendships. Yep, like in the Spice Girls song, friendship never ends. Research consistently shows that people who have strong relationships tend to report higher levels of well-being. But even more objective measures, including the number of close friends a person has, the number of social organizations to which the person belongs, and the amount of time the person spends with others all show small to moderate correlations with happiness. It is indeed the quantity of quality relationships which matters. Spot on, Siri. But it gets even better. Specific types of social relationships are also important for subjective well-being. In a research paper entitled Get Happy, It's Good For You, marital status is one of the strongest demographic predictors of happiness. Married people consistently report higher levels of happiness than single people, and singles report greater happiness than the widow, divorced, or separated. Interestingly, however, it does not appear that marriage itself causes higher level of subjective well-being. Studies over time show that people only receive a small boost in happiness around the time they get married, and they quickly adapt to baseline levels. The differences between married and unmarried people are due primarily to the lasting negative effects of divorce and widowhood. 
along with selection effects that might predispose happy people to marry. So, happily ever after is not that obvious. An interesting article from thehealthy.com talks about a study conducted by researchers at the London School of Economics and Political Science. They asked 23,000 German volunteers, aged 17 to 85, to rate their life satisfaction. The study concluded that we are happiest at two points in our lives, not just one. The first happiness peak begins at age 23, and the second at age 69. This makes a lot of sense. In our early 20s, we are energetic and excited for the changes that come along with being young. New careers, new places to travel, and new people to meet. Mid-40s typically coincides with the stress of kids, mortgages, school fees. By the time we reach our 60s and 70s, we have likely retired and can now find the time to enjoy life, our grandkids, assuming we are healthy. Consequently, happiness tends to follow a U-shaped curve over an individual's lifetime, with satisfaction reaching higher levels during the extremes of the studies range and swinging down with middle age. So, is anybody really happy on Earth? Well, the World Happiness Report determines the world's happiest countries by using the Gallup polling data from 149 countries. It assesses GDP, social supports, healthy life expectancy, freedom to make your own life choices, generosity of the general population, and perceptions of internal and external corruption levels. By the way, they created a fictional country called Dystopia with the world's least happy people as a benchmark to rank each country. Drum roll, please. Here are the top five happiest countries. Number five is Netherlands. Switzerland is fourth. Iceland comes in third. In second place, Denmark. And in first place, we have... Finland. Well done to our Finnish friends. King in the North. When you think about it, it's quite impressive, as the lack of sunlight during long winters in Nordic countries, called the dark season, can cause vitamin D deficiency and trigger depression and feeling of sadness, according to an article on expatriatehealthcare.com. The least happy countries were Afghanistan, Zimbabwe, Rwanda, Botswana. The UK ranks 17th and France 21st. The US with the biggest GDP in the world ranked only 19th. Good proof that high GDP alone doesn't guarantee happiness for a country. Now, Let's discuss the role of happiness for society and the economy. Psychologists have begun using experimental studies to determine whether a positive mindset plays a role in future positive outcomes. These studies show that happy people are more sociable and cooperative than unhappy people, are healthier than unhappy people and earn more money than unhappy people. Several studies have even shown that happy people live longer than unhappy people. And this is not just because happy people tend to be healthy. Thus, although most people want to be happy because it feels good, this desired goal may lead to other positive outcomes in their lives. This reminds me of the quote by Richard Branson, CEO of Virgin. Employees come first. If you take care of your employees, they will take care of their clients. 
This shows the importance of the social factor in ESG for businesses as discussed in the Recoveries You episode. Maximizing shareholders' returns is no longer sufficient for sustainable growth. The interests of all stakeholders, society, employees, clients, the environment, regulators, etc., matters more. Therefore, happiness at work, alongside diversity and inclusion, has become a key priority and a key success factor in the long run. A professor in economics and humanistic studies at Princeton University, Mark Fleurbet, said, I think it's very important to look uh, at these results precisely because we have to refocus our efforts uh, in terms of progress from the production of material stuff to the production of human development and and, uh, human well-being. There is plenty of reserves we can tap on. Um, One is the quality of social relations, which is super important because we are social animals. We depend a lot on what happens in our environment with others, uh, the trust we have. So if we could restore people's trust in in the others and in the institutions, that would be a big contributor to to well-being and also very uh, effective in helping them cooperate more when, when the crisis occurs, like, for instance, the pandemic. The Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative, based at Oxford University, credits the origin of the concept gross national happiness to the fourth king of Bhutan, who declared in 1972 that gross national happiness, GNH, was more important than GDP. Since then, the idea of gross national happiness has influenced Bhutan's economic and social policies and captured the imagination of others far beyond its borders. In creating the Gross National Happiness Index, Bhutan sought to create a measurement tool that would be useful for policymaking and provide policy initiatives for the government, NGOs and businesses of Bhutan to increase GNH. Here's how Bhutan's first democratically elected Prime Minister, Jingming Tingli, explains the global shift to GNH in a 2014 TED Talk on the journey of happiness. The GDP-led model has failed us. And this, I think among others, through these financial crises, have revealed to us that the wealth that we thought we had achieved, that we were pursuing, are indeed illusory, that it's illusory in nature, was exposed by the financial crisis, during which we saw our life savings, our stocks, our homes, our jobs disappear overnight, made us realize that there is something deeply wrong. To quote Socrates, the secret of happiness, you see, is not found in seeking more, but in developing the capacity to enjoy less. The GNH index includes both traditional areas of socioeconomic concerns, such as living standards, health and education, and less traditional aspects of culture and psychological well-being. It is a holistic reflection of the general well-being of the Bhutanese population rather than a subjective psychological ranking of happiness alone. So the GNH is much more about making unhappy people happy again, right? Yes. On this happy thought, let's discuss the future of happiness and the tension between the current and future generations. To shed some light on the subject, let's chat with Professor Claudia Senek, Director of the Wellbeing Observatory at CEPRIMAP, a center for economic research and its applications, and member of the Council for Economic Analysis to the French Prime Minister Elisabeth Borne. 
Claudia has a lot to say about how we should rethink the role of happiness, the impact of inequality on happiness, and finally, she responds to the age-old question, why are the French so unhappy? See you for part two of this episode to discover the complete interview and conclusion to our investigation. Hello, Claudia. Hello. 